You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My creed as a Canadian is summed up in these words. I am a Canadian. A free Canadian. Free to speak without fear. Free to worship God in my own way. Free to stand for what I think right. Free to oppose what I believe wrong. In the 1950s in Canada, a unusual political phenomenon developed. A conservative or Tory in Canadian politics who was, nonetheless, a prairie populist and a strong Canadian nationalist. Never before had Canada seen anything like it. Overnight, a precarious minority government saw the electorate almost double its representation in Parliament at the expense of all three opposition parties. They returned Prime Minister Deacon Baker's government to power with the largest majority of any party since Confederation 91 years ago. He had been an admirer of Huey Long. He tried to run five times for a seat in the Canadian Parliament and lost. It was only on his, uh, lost four times, only on his fifth try that he was able to be elected. So from the 1920s to 1940, he kept running and developed a lot of experience as he got there and tilted his message more in the favor of the type of politics espoused by Huey Long. And this is sometimes at odd with the, the Conservative Party of Canada, which is, by its name, maybe not as conservative as conservatives in the United States all the time, but a fairly conservative party in policy. So he's sometimes at odds with his own party. Canada had been governed by the Liberal Party since the 1930s, since 1935. And now you're talking about the mid-1950s. So you're talking about 20 years that the Conservative Party's been out of power. Good evening. In Ottawa, it's Diefenbaker Day. The Prime Minister returned from London and reported to a packed commons on the Commonwealth Prime Minister's Conference with particular reference to the withdrawal of South Africa. Diefenbaker had a couple assets. One was his ability to express populism well. The other was to avoid the debate currently going on in Canada between the French side and the English side, which was dividing the country. As he said, I am of neither English or French origin altogether. I'm determined to bring about a Canadian citizenship that knows no hyphenated consideration. I'm very happy to be able to say that in the House of Commons today, in my party, we have members of Italian, Dutch, German, Scandinavian, Chinese, and Ukrainian origin, and they are all Canadians. Diefenbacher became very skilled at his rhetoric, and he was also in charge of being the kind of shadow minister and challenging the ruling Liberal Party of Canada on foreign policy. And so Lester Pearson, who later himself would become prime minister, uh, when he was uh, helping the Liberal government and helping the United States during the Suez Conference, 
constantly was the one in the House of Parliament criticizing Pearson for being the lapdog of the United States, for just doing what the United States wanted to do. You have to remember in the Suez debate, the U.S. was taking a stand against Britain and France, who had cooperated with Israel to capture the Suez Canal, unbeknownst to uh, without Eisenhower's permission. And so the United States and the Soviet Union were actually on the same side in that one in getting rid of the British presence and returning the canal's control to Egypt. One of the things that he's going to say later to an American president is that Canada isn't going to be a bird watcher on policy. We're not just going to sit back and wait for you. This actually became very popular among uh, Canadian voters. And in 1957, he was able to defeat uh, the liberal government in an election. He didn't win an outright majority, but working with other smaller parties, he was able to build a minority coalition and Deep the Chief became prime minister. Then he called for a snap election the next year. Now, you know a snap election because if you follow the British politics at all, this is what Theresa May did, where if you have a party in government and if you can get the commons to vote for it, you can have another election. And he did and increased his mandate by working with some of the more uh, nationalist Quebec parties. Now, it's an interesting dynamic in, that, that is still present today in Canadian politics, even with Justin Trudeau's win, is that Quebec's votes are very important. And what had happened was the leader of the Liberal Party at that time had come from Quebec. And so there was a lot of like kind of favorite son advantage for him in the province of Quebec. In 1958, they switch to Lester Pearson, who's not from Quebec, who's not a, a Francophile, so to speak. Some of the loyalties in Quebec are then thrown open away from the Liberal Party. And Deep the Chief seizes on this and calls that snap election and wins many seats for the conservatives in Quebec and working with the current premier of Quebec, who is the, the leader of his own party, a national union party in Quebec. So he gets a big majority, the largest majority that the conservatives had had up to that point. But Diefenbacher's views are very different from where the Liberal Party of Canada had been heading, particularly in respect to the United States. One of the things he's going to call for right out of the gate is that he wants a 15% reduction of trade with the United States and to put that in favor of Britain. Also, he wants to reach out to China. And in 1961, he's going to cut a trade deal with China, communist China, not the nationalist government in Taiwan, communist China for selling wheat from Canada to China. Deep the chief gets along very well with Eisenhower and um, has a good relationship with him. It's different when young John F. Kennedy is elected to the presidency. He didn't drink, didn't smoke. He was, a, you know, someone who, after the speeches were done, would go home and read a book. <laughs> he wasn't that interested in all the lollygagging and political conferences and things like that. Coming from where he did, he saw Kennedy as a spoiled rich kid. And Kennedy felt back that he was boring. Every time an American bought a Canadian company, or every time there was trade with the United States, Canada was giving up a bit of its sovereignty. But 
we could take this Canadian nationalism. One of the things that he does that actually earns him fame after Khrushchev gives this kind of haranguing speech about how imperialist the United States is and and in the UN and and everything like that and that does the shoe bang and and all of that. The next speaker is Diefenbacher, who at the UN says, look, we live right above the United States. We have a tenth of the United States population, and we have so many national resources. If the United States was truly an imperial country, as you suggest, how could we have remained sovereign? Leads to cheers in in the UN General Assembly. And uh, so he was supportive of America and, and had a good relationship with Eisenhower. But he didn't want to be a lapdog, and he wanted to see Canada trading with all countries of the world. But the late 1950s, America's increasing, you know, Britain's still coming off the war. There's a big increase in American investment in Canadian national resources. And there's something else. Kennedy wants Canada to cut ties with Castro's Cuba and to accept nuclear weapons. Kennedy visits Ottawa in 1961, and he hopes to pressure Ottawa on all of these issues. But he makes a couple of mistakes. Don't get an agreement on China. They don't get agreement on, on nuclear weapons. And Kennedy gets you know annoyed by this and apparently leaves behind a memo in which he's written in the corner, SOB. Now, of course, when this is discovered by the Canadians, they're furious. And Kennedy also has a good relationship with uh, Lester Pearson. And the liberals, not being in favor of nuclear weapons, changed their position for the 1963 election to be in favor of taking American weapons. And in 1963, Kennedy sends his personal pollster to help assess what the public wanted. And he might be the first, but he's certainly not the last president to use their political consultants as a weapon on the world stage. Lester Pearson might have had a less cordial relationship with Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson. We don't know all the details, but Pearson's government sold war materials to the United States. The government of Canada's official position and Pearson's position is that the United States should withdraw from Vietnam. This had always been the position of the Canada government, but they had kind of toned it down because they didn't want to offend the United States. When Pearson comes to the United States, he questioned the role of Vietnam in a speech in the United States, in Temple University in Pennsylvania. Johnson requested that Pearson come to see him at the White House. And accounts of the meeting vary, but we know how Lyndon Johnson is. And there's there's a, a comment that he grabbed Pearson by the lapels and said, you know, don't come to my room and piss on my rug or something like that. <laughs> we don't know what really happened there. Now, why am I talking about these stories? Um, well, you know that there's been recent news about President Trump and Justin Trudeau and, you know, Trump sending tweets about Trudeau after the G7 conference. It is true that there is a bit of a history of some conflict between American presidents and Canadian prime ministers. Diefenbacher's probably the biggest one running up to Trudeau. Um, and it's also fair to say that there's many good times between presidents and prime ministers. Jimmy Carter and Pierre Trudeau get together well. So does Reagan and Brian Mulroney. How badly do you want to be prime minister? Not very badly. Um. 
But it is um, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, who probably, you know, comes up uh, as an example. Uh, that's, that's one quotation, but uh, I can give you another one from Plato, that uh, men who want very badly to lead the country shouldn't be trusted. Because of what he did in reaction to China with President Nixon. Now, the first thing to understand is that Trudeau was something of a phenomenon, probably not seen in the United States until Obama and his run for the presidency. And you had something that you called Trudeau-mania in 1967. This is after Lester Pearson decides that he's not going to run again for prime minister. It opens up a leadership conference and then to be followed by a general election in 1968. Trudeau is something of a joke. He has a small ministerial position, and he is running because he is a a, a resident of Montreal. He has both an English and a French, you know, in in his family, um, and he is a nationalist in Montreal. So he's a nationalist in Quebec at a time when they're separatists. So he becomes a great candidate. He's funny and charming and there's just a magic to Trudeau that gets that sweeps the Canadian press in, in, in a way that hasn't been seen in, in, in Canada what I like about it is this man is going to bring us one million young men and women to the liberal banner who without him would be formidable until his son Justin uh, who first gets a claim for speaking at Trudeau's funeral in 2000 and then becomes a member of parliament later and now prime minister. But that had happened to the father first. But in the United States, among conservatives, Pierre Trudeau is regarded as, you know, uh, soft on communism. Yeah. We discussed a great many subjects. Uh, Chairman Mao uh, asked a lot of questions about Canada, its geography its climate in terms of uh, production, particularly of agricultural goods, uh, wheat in particular. Um, he was very interested in uh, our northern reaches, in uh, questions relating to the Arctic. From there we uh, went to other areas of the world. We uh, discussed the Middle East at some length. The Trudeau government introduces a motion in Parliament condemning the 1972 renewed bombing of North Vietnam, and this angers President Nixon. And he continues to have a dislike for Trudeau, and he refers to him as that A word. <laughs> but a, you know, but the nations still have relationships, and each visits the other. What angers Nixon the most is that Trudeau goes and visits China and sees Mao before Trudeau does. And later, Trudeau's interviewed after Nixon goes to China. And, of course, Trudeau had no idea that Nixon was planning it. It seemed like the last thing that a president like Nixon, you know, he was as surprised as anybody that Nixon was going to visit Mao. But Trudeau visits Mao first. And afterwards, Trudeau know, knows why he was getting so many angry diplomatic signals that he shouldn't be visiting China. Because Nixon wanted to do it first. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Going on around the Watergate thing, I well, I tell you that, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, the people here with, uh, that I know have, have uh, and certainly myself, have, have great confidence and respect. And like amongst politicians, we realize how, how, how an issue like this can be seized upon and distorted. And uh, Right, well, how kind of you to call. Let me say that it is a... There's some um, mostly private tension between Trudeau and Ronald Reagan, who have different policies. But Trudeau, for his own sake, expresses to speaking with the president directly and saying, you know, Ron, you have to do something about this and trying to encourage him to work with the Russians. Prime Minister Trudeau briefed me on his recent discussions with leaders in Europe and Asia on his concerns for world peace, disarmament, and improving the East-West dialogue. We fully share the concerns for peace which the Prime Minister has expressed. We appreciate his strong statements supporting the joint efforts of the Western allies to negotiate meaningful arms reductions and to promote dialogue with other nations. And I thank you, Mr. Prime Minister, for coming here, sharing your ideas with us, and we wish you Godspeed in your efforts to help build a durable peace. 
think he did more than support it. I think he has been showing through his administration and the... Well, as, just, as you have just heard, the uh, president supported what is being known as my peace initiative, but uh, I think he did more than support it. I think he has been showing through his administration in the past months at least that uh, as far as we are concerned on the NATO side, we want to change the trend line. We want to make it clear that not only the alliance is strong, that it will defend itself, that it will not be intimidated, but that it is also pursuing peace. So a couple questions I was asked on Quora. One was, what losing presidential ticket might have done better with the vice presidential candidate heading the ticket instead? And I really thought about that. So a ticket that lost, that you would have been better off putting the vice presidential candidate ahead. Okay. Uh, First of all, I think not most of them. So that's something to say here. Vice presidential candidates are usually chosen for a reason, and that reason is usually secondary to the reason for choosing the presidential candidate. So you only see this in a few cases. So I will talk five examples that I have. And one is, and I know this would be somewhat controversial, but you could take uh, Kerry Edwards in 2004 and flip him and make it Edwards Kerry in 2004. Now, Bruce, you're going to say you're crazy because Edwards ended up getting in that scandal. Yeah, the entire scandal, though, happens entirely after the presidential election of 2004 and likely would not have happened at all um, if Edwards had been president. So it's, uh, I mean, who knows, the whole uh, Richelle Hunter uh, scandal involving uh, him having a child with her, the videographer. Um, So I think as a candidate, he was formidable. I think as a Democrat from North Carolina who possibly could carry that state, not as a vice presidential candidate, that wasn't going to happen because it's still Kerry at the top of that ticket. But as a home, uh, you know, uh, favorite son, presidential candidate, I think that could have happened. I think he, he had a message that was inspiring to people about poverty, and, and it would have been an interesting race. I still think 2004 was tough for um, to, to mount a campaign against Republicans because issues of patriotism came to the fore, the nation having been in an emergency not too long before. I would say that absent the 9-11 um, Bush would have had a tough presidency, I think. Don't think he was extremely popular, came into office without, obviously, popular vote. His ideas, what he wanted to do, including uh, taking Saddam Hussein out and changing the regime, were not popular with the American people. His his initial plans for um, providing funds to religious charities to replace and and, and some of the public sector efforts were not popular and had to be shelled. Um, in his second term, 
He tries a very unpopular um, plan to privatize Social Security. He's going to call it that he's just allowing people to use private funds, but it's going to lead to substantial amounts, dollars going out of the Social Security system and into private accounts and incurring fees. So all of these things are just not popular, very uh, ill-considered plans. And that, to me, reflects how he would be as a regular old president absent a national emergency that happens. So um, anyway, um, okay, so let's get back to the topic. What losing presidential ticket might have done better with the vice presidential candidate heading the ticket instead? Go back a bit. Um, Benjamin Harrison, 1892. His vice presidential candidate was a very inspiring one, a progressive reformer, newspaper editor, um, associated with Horace Greeley, well-known well-liked by um, your more, say, radical Republicans, liberal Republicans, reform Republicans. So if you ran Whitelaw Reed Harrison, maybe you have a better chance of winning 1892, shaving off some of that populist vote that hurt Harrison. Hard to say, though, you know, hard to say because you're still going to be responsible for the administration's policies on tariffs, which were the primary reason for the defeat in 1892. In 1956, Kefauver Stevenson, I think, would have been a better ticket than Stevenson Kefauver. Estes Kefauver, the man in the coonskin cap, the senator from Tennessee who had famous television hearings taken on the mob and racketeering and also was a fighter, was a... um, for a Southerner, was a fighter on civil rights. I think that he would have ran a stronger campaign than Stevenson did alone. Um, Benston Dukakis, and I have to say on Quora, this was the winner, that if you ran Lloyd Benson for president, Dukakis for vice president, you would have done better. I think, though, uh, a lot of people felt that way in 1988, I do remember, uh, my grandmother, who was a Republican mostly in voting, um, really liked Lloyd Benson. I'm pretty sure if there was a way to vote for him, she would have. A lot of that's based on the debate performance. So you have to go back and even within a counterfactual, you got to be realistic and say, well, he wouldn't have had that debate performance because he would have been, would not have been debating Dan Quayle. He would have been debating George Bush. So. Uh, the other thing is that Benson had some issues, and you have to go back to that time where people looked at some of these scandals, like his interaction with lobbyists and some of the dinners and breakfasts that he had where people had to donate to his club to get in, and things that nowadays we just assume are happening anyway, I think, in a lot of cases, but a little bit more of an issue in 1988. Um, and uh, But, you know, it's a good thought. I certainly think given what happened in 1988 and what they were able to do to Dukakis, it's easy to make a case that if you're a Democrat, you might have rather had a conservative Democrat from Texas heading up that ticket, get that win, um, and let the chips fall where they may from there. Okay, here's another one. Had the 25th Amendment existed before 1940, and Wendell Wilkie was elected president in 1940, okay, and his vice president, who would have been then Charles L. McNary, died in office, 
what would have been done during the last eight months of his presidency before he died? Okay, so let me put this all in perspective. The person asking this question has it exactly right. Uh, Wendell Wilkie, who was the Republican candidate for president against Franklin Roosevelt in his third, running for his third term, his vice presidential candidate was Charles McNary, who was a very well-regarded uh, congressman who had put forth farm legislation before the Depression. And indeed, McNary ends up dying in office. And... 1944. So does Wilkie, actually. So if we're just going to say, hold to the reality of what happened within this counterfactual, you know, both both president and vice president die before the first term is over. Now I'll get into that. Here's the thing. It's true as it turned out that both Wilkie and McNary died in 1944. Wilkie in October 1944. McNary in February 1944. That would have left a few months of the presidency if Wilkie had won, with no president and no vice president. And since it was before the 25th Amendment, there would be no mechanism for a President Wilkie to ever replace the vice president. Now, sidebar, it's worth noting that Wilkie's health and his death might have been related to health neglected. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jane Perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th rather than a, a health condition that was inevitable. And maybe with more eyes on him as president, it's possible he might have survived longer, but let's put that aside. It's not only before the 25th Amendment, it's before the Presidential Succession Act of 1947, which defined the succession to the presidency better. Okay, that's the congressional statute 
But in any case, the answer is Congress determines who succeeds the president per the Constitution. They can't determine it on the spot. They determine it through past statute. And that affects any action that happens before they pass another statute. So in 1886, Congress decided that secession would be Succession would be in this order, president, vice president, secretary of state, and then the rest of the cabinet in order of the creation of the cabinet office. Then it would go to the Senate pro tempore, the senator for the time, Senate president to the Senate president pro tempore, and Senate president for the time being, and then the speaker currently, currently the speaker is right there after the vice president, a significant change made in 1947. But this is three years before that. So we would say whoever Wilkie picked as secretary of state would then become vice president and would become president upon Wilkie's death if that occurred in 1944. And I'd say a very good shot would be Arthur Vanderberg, senator from Michigan, involved in foreign affairs, a big wig, one of Wilkie's rivals, a heavy, if you will. And it's good when you win a presidential primary and then win the presidential election to put one of your heavies, one of your rivals in the secretary of state position or pick somebody who has a lot of foreign experience. Why do you do that though? Why did like Obama pick Hillary Clinton? Was it just about politics? A little bit. You want to make sure that person's not running against you in a primary in four years or in a convention in four years as would have happened back in the 40s. You know, so it's a little bit of that. You're also signaling to the world because if somebody is a significant player in your party, you're signaling to these countries that you're putting a heavy in this office. Vandenberg was heavily involved in the creation of the United Nations. It's also possible that Robert Taft of Ohio, also a rival to Wilkie in that convention, would have been a possibility possibility for Secretary of State, but I I say Arthur Vandenberg probably becomes president, probably is picked as Secretary of State because he was associated at the time in the Republican Party with foreign policy gravitas. Okay, why did Charles Evan Hughes resign his seat on the Supreme Court to run against Woodrow Wilson, given that this meant Wilson would appoint his replacement? Given the contemporary climate, would any justice, would any justice consider doing that today? Um... Let me answer the the last question first. Today, probably not. We just don't have that same connection between politics and the court that we did then. And we did in Charles Evans Hughes' time, in William Howard Taft's time, in Lincoln's time when he appointed his secretary of the treasury and a political rival to the Supreme Court, when Grant appointed his attorney general, Stanton, and a political figure in the party to the Supreme Court. Uh, There was kind of a get-on, get-off situation with politics in the court at that time, and we moved beyond that, and we have very experienced jurists uh, on the court. Your last significant one, I mean, you could say say Sandra Day O'Connor, who, although she had some short time as a judge, she had been a member of of the Arizona legislature, and that was really her experience. So experience was political. Before that, Earl Warren, popular governor of California and 1948 vice presidential candidate, makes a deal with Eisenhower. I won't run against you. Uh, I won't insist that you pick me for vice president. I'll help you win California in 52. I want to be a Supreme Court justice, and he becomes chief. Okay. So put that all aside. I don't think it happens today, but why did it happen then? Why did Hughes resign? 
Hughes had been governor of New York, politician, a popular one, before his service on the court. Republicans had won every presidential election since 1860. So for 52 years at that time, saved three elections. So 13 elections to three, the GOP wins. It's pretty sure bet, as you can get, that if you're nominated, you're going to become president. And on top of that, it was well acknowledged that the last election, that 1912 election, was a fluke. Wilson won because Taft and Roosevelt were fighting. He won a plurality. He didn't deserve the office. People didn't suddenly become Democrats ascribing to all that Democrat low-tariff talk. No. They were still Republicans. They were just split over how to do Republicanism, and you let a Democrat slip in, now corrected in 1916. And Hughes was the perfect person to unify the party because he had enough friends in the Roosevelt crowd, enough friends in the conservative or you might say Taft crowd. Hughes thought he had it. And he waited for the nomination in June. GOP conventions were early those days. Then he accepted and he resigned from the court. Hughes was the last candidate to come from SCOTUS. But Owen Roberts had flirted with the idea of running for president in 1936. And William O. Douglas was at least under consideration by Franklin Roosevelt for the vice presidential slot in 1944. Of course, Roosevelt was the only one seriously thinking that he would be a vice presidential candidate, but a pretty important one to be talking about it. And today it probably doesn't happen. So there you have it. Those are three questions that I got on the Quora that I think are are interesting. Thanks for supporting me and subscribing to the Patreon, the Premium Podcast. Much appreciated. Thanks for listening.